Okay, well, uh, if you have your Bible, please do open with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. That's going to be the text we're looking at this morning. Um, Just before we do look at this together, let me just pray again and ask for God's help for this time. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word together now. This is a great privilege for us to be opening again your word, the breath of God breathing upon us, Spirit-inspired scripture, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. Oh Lord, just come and show us your glory. Help me to be faithful. Help us to be attentive And Lord, just come again and remind us of how Christmas shapes our mission as a church. Guide us, we pray, during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to the second message in this new Advent series, Christmas According to Jesus. During this season, we're looking at Specific places in Scripture where Jesus explains in his own words why he came into the world. We started off last week looking at John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you may have life and life in abundance. This week, We're going to focus on the saying of Jesus from the passage that Rachel read earlier. We're going to look at Matthew 9, verse 13, where Jesus explains Christmas and says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. A couple of weeks back, uh, we had a a gathering with some friends. It was kind of like a halfway through the AQE test party for parents and kids. And uh, adults were ki- and kids were all gathered together. And one of the games we played was Pass the Parcel. And I'm sure you all know the game. You know, there's a gift that's wrapped with about 10 layers of wrapping. You pass it around. And when the music stops, you tear off the wrapping with the hope that this could be the layer that unveils the gift at the center of the whole thing. Well, uncovering the true meaning of Christmas, I think it's a bit like past the parcel. There's lots of stuff wrapped around the true meaning of Christmas, lots of fun things that we enjoy that I think are fairly innocent, Christmas music, trees, decoration, turkey, mince pies, presents, all of that. But when you think of it, all they are is just wrapping paper. They're just wrapping paper that are wrapped around layer after layer over the thing that's at the center of it all, the gift that's at the center of it all, and that is the coming of Jesus Christ. And here in the passage we're looking at this morning, we learn why his coming is such a gift. Jesus explains in this passage that he had to come into the world at Christmas. He had to come like a doctor who would bring healing and wholeness to a a sin-infected, sin-sick world. That's the picture Jesus uses to describe Christmas in these verses. In a sense, these verses show us that our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a missionary God coming into the world like a surgeon to cut out our cancer of sin, to bring healing to us, to make us whole. 
Jesus wants us to know that's what Christmas is all about. Everything else is just wrapping paper. That's the gift at the center of it all. The one who came like a doctor to heal us when we were so sick with sin. But in the passage, it's important to see that Jesus also, he doesn't just convey information about why he came. By what he says in this passage, particularly to the religious leaders who had become a bit insular and inward looking, Jesus makes clear that his mission is supposed to give shape to our mission. This passage actually shows us how Christmas shapes our mission as a church and as individual Christians. Because as Jesus came into the world to bring healing to those who were infected with the sickness of sin, he now calls us to go out into the world in his name to get amongst the sick and the broken and the disillusioned and to bring them the only true gift that can bring them healing in life. So what we're going to do this morning as we just walk down through this short passage is we're going to look first at Jesus' description, explanation of why he came into the world. We'll observe the goal, the strategy, and the heart of his mission. We'll just run through it and see why he came into the world. Then we're going to reflect in the second half of the message on how that mission should give shape to our mission, how the goal, strategy, and heart of Jesus' mission shapes the goal, strategy, and heart of our mission as a church here in the city center. So first of all, let's look down at the text and see why Jesus came into the world at Christmas. First, thinking of the goal of his mission. In chapter 9, verse 1 of Matthew's gospel, we learn that Jesus has come to what Matthew calls his own city, which we know to be Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. In verse 9, at the start of our passage, we read that as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, it's no surprise that Jesus meets a tax collector like Matthew here on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. Capernaum was a border town between two districts that were governed each by one of the sons of Herod the Great. Capernaum was like a customs declaration point. There had to be checks and tariffs on the movement of goods. Now, the Brexit protocol has made us very familiar or perhaps very confused with this kind of thing, but Capernaum was a place like our so-called Irish sea border. With brevity, we're told in verse 9 that Jesus goes up to Matthew, this tax collector who's sitting there at the customs declaration booth, and Jesus just says to him, follow me. And immediately, we read that Matthew rose and followed Jesus. Now, you can read this and easily miss the significance of this moment and how this opening verse of our section sets up the whole account. Tax collectors were among the most hated men in Jewish society. You can see that Jesus understood this because of what he said earlier in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5, 46. He said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? So Jesus there looking at even the scum of the earth, the tax collectors, they love people who love them. You're called to go beyond that. 
The reason for tax collectors being so hated in their day is because the whole practice of tax collection in Israel had become riddled with corruption. Tax collectors were known to earn their living by skimming the cream off the taxes they collected, collecting more than was needed so they could line their own pockets. People hated them for this. In Mark's gospel, Matthew is given the name Levi, probably the name of his tribe, showing that Matthew, this tax collector, was from a Jewish background, probably a Levite. Jewish men who entered the profession of the tax collector would usually be expelled from the synagogue. Close contact with them was said to render one ceremonially ceremonially unclean. And you have to ask, why would a Jewish man enter such a profession? Well, maybe Matthew had no other work available to him. Maybe he was just greedy and he wanted to get rich. Maybe he just thought, I don't care about this religious stuff. I just want to line my pockets. We just don't know. But it certainly left Matthew with a certain social disrespectability in Jesus' day. And that's an understatement. No one wanting to build a popular and successful following would call someone like Matthew to be in their gang. So when Jesus says to him, follow me, there is major shock factor here. Any Jew reading this in the first century would have been like, what? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the other disciples who were following Jesus, they must have felt extremely uncomfortable with this themselves. What are you doing, Jesus? If your goal is to build a following, to build a church, to be popular, to get people to come into our group, this is not the way to go about it. You are going to get us into a place of social disrepute. Changing this sort of angle upon which we look at this account, you have to wonder how this was viewed from Matthew's position. We're not given any details about what happened in that moment other than that Jesus called him and he rose and followed Jesus. Was he disillusioned with his job as a tax collector? Was he regretful of his life choices? Was there perhaps the ring of an irresistible authority in the voice of Jesus that day? We don't know. Here's something we do know, though. Jesus wanted to change Matthew's life. He sought out a man that no one else would have wanted. And he said, look, there's room for you among my disciples. What was Jesus doing? He was unveiling to us the goal of his mission. He was doing what he came into the world to do, to call sinners to seek and save lost people like this sinful tax collector. He saw him, he called him, he totally changed his life. That's what Jesus does. As far as we know, it was this Matthew who wrote the gospel that we're reading. Totally transformed by Jesus. After seeing the goal of Jesus' mission in that opening verse, then we move on to see the strategy of his mission in the next. 
In the next scene of the narrative, verse 10, we're open, uh, we open with Jesus now sitting in Matthew's house. It seems Matthew had invited Jesus for a meal. Mark tells us this clearly in his account. But it's not just Jesus and a few of his followers with Matthew in the house. We're told that many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. It would be like Jesus going into one of the local hostels here where people who've had a hard time and have found themselves without a home go and sitting among people who are drug dealers, alcoholics, who are broken. This is all a bit much for the Pharisees. And they get hold of some of Jesus' disciples and ask in verse 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he, why is he there? Why is he there amongst such disreputable company? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That is some question to stop and ponder, isn't it? You just read things like that in the Bible quickly, don't you, and fly past. You just stop and meditate on that for a while, and it is just glorious. Why does your teacher sit and eat with tax collectors and sinners? What are they asking there? Or what are they observing? In some ways, I guess they're asking, why does Jesus seem to be so intentional about moving out of his circle of people who are just like him towards people who are very different to him? Why does Jesus seem to move towards the broken? Why does he move out of his comfort zone and, and instead of building just people who are like him all around him, why does he seem to keep going out to people who are not just like him? Well, the answer to that question is again, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to form a little religious respectable clique who pontificated about the finer points of theological theory. He didn't come to just hang out with people like him. He came to get amongst the lost to bring the presence and healing of his kingdom. He came to seek and save the lost. What was his strategy? Spend time with lost people. So that's the goal of his mission and the strategy of his mission. But now, as we move on to verse 12, we see the heart of his mission. Jesus responds to his critics. And this brings us to the burden of the text. When he heard it, when he overheard the Pharisees saying, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, a doctor. It's those who are sick who need the doctor. Essentially, Jesus' critics were saying here, you should be in our circle, the religious respectable. What are you doing with those sinners? Jesus says, Look, what good would it be for me to just sit with you all day? Those who are well have no need of a doctor. It's the sick who need the cure that I alone can give. Now, he's not saying that the Pharisees, etc., are genuinely righteous, as in they don't need his cure. He makes clear elsewhere that they absolutely do. He's being proverbial. He's saying, I'm a doctor 
who can heal the sinner's sick soul. Why would I distance myself from sick sinners? Imagine if doctors only ever went to meetings with other doctors to talk about doctoring, and they never tended to sick people. Now, I know we have loads of doctors in here. Some of you might be saying, well, I know some doctors who do that, but that's not what doctors are supposed to do. They're supposed to be amongst the sick. And notice the way Jesus uses this proverb and this illustration to actually talk about sin. He calls sin here a sickness. It's a sickness of the soul. Far worse than any physical sickness we can get. Far worse than COVID, far worse than cancer, far worse than anything. Those sicknesses can take your physical life, but the sickness of sin can condemn you to eternity in hell. And when you start to actually frame and think about all our physical ailments that can take our lives, and we actually look through them through the lens of the fact that the greatest problem, the greatest sickness of our soul that was sin, has been healed by Jesus if we are Christ's, then that can give us real hope, can't it? When we actually look at some of the physical sicknesses that we fear that can take our lives. The greatest sickness that is sin is healed by Jesus. He is the doctor. He calls himself here the physician who can give the cure for sin. He's the doctor. He's the medicine. He's the one who can heal us from our problem of sin. Imagine if he had kept that all to himself. Imagine if Jesus said, do you know what? I'm very comfortable at the Father's side in glory. All those rebellious sex sinners, I do not want to go out among them. I'll just stay where I am. Not one of us would have a hope. Jesus then in verse 13 says to the Pharisees who are clearly confused about their mission, he says, go and learn what this means. That was a rabbinical phrase, which meant go back to the book. Go back to your Old Testament. Go and learn what what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, Jesus here was quoting Hosea chapter 6, the first passage that Rachel read earlier. And in Hosea chapter 6, God is charging his people with the empty practice of religious rituals. In Hosea chapter 6, God says, look, you've got all religious. You have reduced down being my people to ticking boxes. You go to the temple, you offer your sacrifice, you go back home. You pay your tithe, you go back home. You, you try and study the law as a tick box exercise, you go back home. You've turned the whole thing into just religion. You've lost sight of what I really want. I desire mercy, steadfast love, not sacrifice. What God was saying there was, I don't want empty religion. I want you to embody the values of my kingdom. Mercy, steadfast love, care for the outcast. Embody my kingdom. Don't just sit in little groups and talk about religion. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in quoting Hosea chapter 6, you're doing what your fathers did. You're obsessed with running your religion and you're missing the heart of it all. Then he concludes, for I came not to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Another way to phrase this is Jesus is saying here, I've come not for those who see themselves as righteous, religious, respectable people. I've come to call sinners. Call them to what? Well, Luke tells us in his account of this narrative, Jesus came to call them to repentance. To repentance. That means to turn away from a life of sin where you're ignoring God and to follow Jesus, to be transformed by his grace. And you don't have to get your life all together and get it to a respectable place before you can follow Jesus. Matthew, Jesus said, follow me just as you are come. I'll transform your life. And that is Jesus' invitation today to the city. In all its brokenness, follow me. I'll make you. I'll make you. I'll transform you. Here is the essence of Christmas according to Jesus. I came to call broken, sin-sickened sinners to myself so that in me they could be healed, healed from sin, receive forgiveness, mercy, grace, and renewal. This is Jesus, the light of the world who came to shine in the darkness. So that is the goal and the strategy and the heart of Jesus' mission. That is Christmas according to Jesus. Coming not to call the righteous, but sinners. Coming as a doctor to heal those who are sick with sin. Now, as I said, this account is not only in our Bible to give us information about why Jesus came into the world. It is here to give shape to our mission now that we are in the world bearing the name of Jesus. So the the question we need to ask now in light of this passage is, how should this mission of Jesus shape our mission as a church? How should the goal, the strategy, and the heart of Jesus' mission actually shape what tomorrow looks like for us as individual Christians, and then corporately for us as a church. We're just going to walk back through the goal, strategy, and heart of Jesus' mission and think of how this shapes the goal, strategy, and heart of ours. First, the goal of Jesus' ministry establishes the goal of ours. The goal of Jesus' ministry was to seek and save the lost. He didn't look out on people and see them in terms of their social status, their skin color, their religious background, or any other socio-cultural marker that is in use among us. He saw through all that clutter, and he saw sin-sick souls who needed what he alone could give. The goal of his ministry was not to gain popularity or to build a crowd. His goal was to call lost and sick sinners to healing and wholeness found in him. Now, we must always remember our goal as a church and our goal as Christians is not ultimately to be popular. Our goal is not ultimately to build a big crowd here at Great Vic and have everyone love us. Our goal as a church is to take the whole gospel to the whole city and to call sin-sick people to follow Jesus and find healing and life in him. The mission of the church is to preach the gospel. So many churches assume the gospel for a generation and then they lose the gospel and they get reduced into little community hubs 
and we'll put on a nice fair for this, that, or the other, and we'll do this for the community, and all of that can be great. But when a church becomes nothing more than a little community hub and a community center, they've completely lost their way. Anyone in the city can be a community center and be a community hub. Anyone can help the people out there with physical needs. It's the church alone that can tend to the spiritual needs of people. It is the church alone that has the heart's neediest cure. We have Jesus. We have the gospel. And the sin-sick world needs the gospel. If we lose sight of that, then we've lost our identity. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We must never lose sight of this as our mission as a church. We're here to seek and save lost people, to call them to come to Jesus. The goal of his ministry establishes ours. And second then, the strategy of his ministry should shape the strategy of our ministry. Here's what I want us to think about here. Jesus' intentional moving among those who needed his message. That's a challenge to us. Let's think of our own lives for a moment. Let's think of our, our social makeup even as a church. We all naturally migrate to people who are like us. We all like to find fellow Christians who we can huddle together with for mutual support and comfort. This is natural. And on the whole, it's good. We do need to find support systems for each other close friends, good people around us who can encourage us. But we must be really careful that we don't form impenetrable, holy huddles that have no thought or time or room for people like Matthew. Tax collectors and sinners. Jesus exposed what we could call the separatistic, religious snobbery of the Pharisees in this account. We want to make sure we're not making the same mistake. We don't want to build here at Great Vic a white, middle-class, little enclave in the city where we force people to come in and conform to our cultural norm, where we say, you have to dress like us, you have to speak like us, you have to act like us if you're really going to be a good Christian. That's a mistake the Jews made continually. That's what is actually leaning me, hopefully I think I'm leaning this way, I feel the Lord's leading me to do a series in the book of Galatians next in the new year once we finish Daniel. Because what the Jews were doing was saying, yeah, yeah, trust in Jesus, follow him, but then become like us, become culturally like us, speak like us, dress like us, get circumcised like us, and then you'll really be a Christian. We've got to be so, so careful that we don't create a culture that says, yes, it's follow Jesus, but if you really want to fit into Great Vic, you've also got to become middle class like us. And that has so many little subtle applications to thinking intentionally about how we dress, how we speak, how we invite people. So, so many things. We want to be really careful that we don't form an impenetrable, holy huddle of people who are just like us. Jesus intentionally went out to people not like him because he was a doctor to bring healing to the sick. We have to remember we're, we're not just in our wee fish tank where we all swim around as Christians happily. I've said this before and I'll say it again for those that haven't heard it. We're called, remember, not to be a, a dead sea church. We're called to be a sea of Galilee church. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Sea of Galilee in Israel has the River Jordan flowing into it, and you've got the sea, and the River Jordan flows out of it. There's life coming into it, life going out of it, and it is full of life. The Dead Sea has the River Jordan flowing into it, but nothing flowing out of it. It's dead, lifeless. As a church, we want to have the ministry of God's Word and the power of the Spirit flowing into us, not making us all fat, obese Christians. We want the Word of God to be flowing into us, and then we want to, be that, we want to have that Word flowing out of us, brightly shining into the city, into our workplaces, as we're salt and light wherever God has put us. We don't want to be just receiving and getting really spiritually fat and not bringing life forward to others. How can we begin to do that? On Wednesday evening, uh, there was a guy called Roger Cook here from Home for Good, helping us to think about how we can be more involved in caring for children who've entered social care in our country through fostering and adoption. He said one line that I wrote down immediately because I thought it was so good. He said, those who are transformed from the inside out by Jesus are called to the same outside in mission that Jesus exemplified. I'll say that again. Those transformed from the inside out by Jesus are called to the same outside in mission that he exemplified. Jesus transforms us from the inside out and then calls us to get involved, going to the outside to bring people in. How can we do this? Here's a few really practical suggestions to just help you think about this. First, I'd really encourage you to start praying that you would see people with the eyes of Jesus. Pray. Lord, let me see people like you see people. Help me to see through all the social factors, the external factors, and to see that all people are either brothers or sisters in Christ or they're lost sheep without a shepherd. Help me to see people that way. It's really important for us to remember the gospel is not just for Protestants in Northern Ireland. So many evangelicals are afraid of reaching out in creative ways to Catholics today because they're afraid of being called ecumenical. We have to ask questions about how do we engage well with Catholics in our city, with Muslims, with the LGBT community, with refugees. Remember, we're called to make disciples of all people. Start praying that you'll see people the way Jesus sees them. Maybe a second thing you could do then is seek to move towards people who are not Christians. Show interest to them as people. Jesus didn't wait for or expect people to come to him. He went out to them. He didn't shout the gospel at people from a distance. He went into people's homes. He entered relationships. He got to know people. He sat down and talked with them. Part of Jesus' strategy was to sit down in people's houses and eat with them. You could say part of his strategy was to go to a coffee shop and sit and have a coffee with someone in modern-day terminology. That's a good place for us to start. Maybe, let me just ask you to think about this. Could you invite someone in your workplace out for a coffee sometime? Just be a wee bit more intentional about getting to know them. Could you invite one of your neighbors through the, this Christmas season into your home for a cup of coffee, maybe a bit of whatever you'd enjoy at this time of the year, mince pies, whatever it is. Invite them in, not as a target, but as a person you want to love with the love of Christ. Could you take one of these Christmas books we've bought, The Four Emotions of Christmas, and, and just 
say one of the things I'm going to do is respond this morning. Take one of these books. We bought some of them. They're back there for you to take. Could I give this to someone? Just say, look, here's a wee book I'd love to give you. It explains all about Christmas. Maybe that's one way you could respond this morning. Certainly we need to recognize that the strategy of Jesus' ministry was not to just stay with people who were just like him. It was to try to get out and engage with people who were different to him. That should shape the strategy of our mission. But now finally, let's think of how the heart of Jesus' ministry should become the heart of our ministry. Let's allow Jesus' final proverb and final words in the text to search our hearts. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We are called to have a heart of love and compassion for lost people. It's so easy to lose sight of this, to stop seeing with the eyes of compassion as we walk around our city. If you pray, sometimes it can be unbearable. It can sometimes be unbearable to walk around this city and see the lostness. But you just cry out to the Lord. The Apostle Paul walked around Athens and he felt so deeply distressed by the idolatry he saw. Ask God to break your heart for what breaks his. Jesus is saying here, hang out with other Christians all the time. Why would I do that? I'm someone with a mission. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I'd encourage you to just keep that, even just ponder that phrase this week. The sick need a doctor, the sick need a doctor, the sick need a doctor. The majority of you spend the majority of your time with non-Christians in your workplace. I have been so encouraged as the pastor of this church hearing of the various ways that you're engaging with your non-Christian colleagues and friends and family members. Even just this week, we got a message, someone who's an opportunity to talk to a work colleague and they wanted a recommendation of a book that they could give to them, a devotional book. On Wednesday evening, when I asked about evangelistic conversations and how we can be praying for people, it's just lovely to hear some of the ways that you're having opportunities to be salt and light in your workplaces amongst your colleagues. Do you know if I'm really honest with you? I'm slightly envious of you. As a pastor, I spend most of my time are Christians. Now, I love you, okay? I love you dearly as, as my church family, as the flock. But a lot of my time is, is encouraging, discipling, helping Christians and trying to encourage them to get out there and do the work. And, and Lindsay will testify to this. Because I'm always in the place of encouraging others to evangelize, I feel such a burden for evangelism myself. If an electric man comes to our house, if anyone comes to read the meter, I'm telling you they're getting it. I'm always like, I've got to do it now. I've got to take this 20 seconds of courage that I tell everyone about. I've got to give them a tract. I've got to do something. I think they're getting afraid to knock my door and read the meter because the last few electric readings have come through no meter read. I want to encourage you so, so great that so many of you are out in places I'll never be, being salt and light. Keep being that. Never underestimate the power of your quiet witness at work. I know years can go by where you don't really have any good conversations and you can be discouraged, but just keep going. Keep living for Christ quietly and faithfully, working in your work as unto the Lord. Remember, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, 
The word for work can also be translated as worship. Let your good work be part of your offering to the Lord. You are the aroma of Christ among your colleagues. And every now and again, you'll get your moment. Pray that the Lord will give you the courage to just do what he wants you to do in that moment. We're not wanting to ram the gospel at anyone. We don't have to worry about that because the power is in the gospel. We just want to faithfully and gently present the hope that we have to those who are sick with sin, knowing that that gospel has the power to transform their lives and heal them like it did to Matthew in this account. So keep praying for your colleagues. Keep engaging. Keep moving towards those that are not Christians. And pray that even this Christmas, the Lord would open a door for you to share the life-giving, healing power that there is in Jesus Christ. That's how Christmas shapes our mission as a church. The goal and the strategy and the heart of Jesus, his mission, becomes the goal, strategy, and heart of ours. And remember, don't forget, as you live out Christmas in your day-to-day life, you're also called to live in the goodness of this gospel yourself. It's so easy to forget this. Remember once, we were the Matthew. We were the undesirable. We were the sinners, unlovely. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He moved towards us when no one else would have. We were sick. Our sickness would have taken us to a lost eternity. And Jesus stepped in and he lifted us up and he said, Come to me and I will give you rest. I will heal your sin-sick soul. I'll save you from hell and I'll give you life eternal. Live in the goodness of that this Christmas. And let the goodness of your joy in Christ overflow naturally in your life as you pray for your colleagues, as you reach out to your lost family members and friends, and you just keep asking the Lord to give you the opportunity to live out Christmas, to live out this glorious hope we have of a Savior who came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came to bring healing and life to sinners. And that defines and shapes our mission as a church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have as Christians, the healing we have received for our sin-sickened souls through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And Lord, we pray that you would shape us by the gospel so that our goal, strategy, heart, the goal and strategy and heart of our ministry and mission as a church and as individuals would be shaped by Jesus, that we'd feel the challenge there today of the one who didn't just stay comfortable, but who went out and sought out the broken and the lost and non-Christians so that he could call them into his kingdom. And Lord, as we have reflected on that, just as we've closed there, we've, we've thought of your challenge for us to live in the goodness of this, to remember the good news, it's our news, that once we were sick with sin and now we've been healed, 
You've loved us and you've set us free from our sins. You've healed us from the inside out. And now you invite us to be part of your outside in mission. Help us to be faithful and never lose sight of that, we pray. And we thank you for all the the people here, and we pray for each person as they go this week in amongst their colleagues, amongst their, their lost family members and friends. We just pray that you'd open a way for us to gently and with wisdom share the hope that is ours so that we can be faithful witnesses, salt and light, just where you've placed us, and that we would trust the results and, and, and leave the results up to you. Lord, we just commit this to you and pray that you would accomplish much good through the seed of your word this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to respond this morning uh, by singing the first two verses of O Church, Arise, and then we're going to have communion together. Start of another new month, we're going to break the bread and drink the wine together to remember that place where we were healed uh, through Jesus' accomplishments. So let's stand together, sing the first few verses. If you've um, not grab, if you're sharing in communion, you haven't picked up your bread and cup on the way in, this is a moment to just slip back and pick them up and then we'll settle our hearts together as we remember Lord, the Lord in this way. Let's stand and sing. Mm-hmm.